Well, welcome everybody. This is Bill Robichaud. I'm one of the co-founders and directors of the Salwa Foundation. And I'm really happy to be in conversation today with two people very important to the, the whole Salwa story and the history of its conservation. The first one is George Schaller. Uh, we're doing this conversation, this chat today, basically in honor of George's recently recent 90th birthday. That's just incredible to me. George has been doing field work for 70 years, and for more than 60 years, he's been defining his place as the preeminent field biologist of our time by being the first one or the first Westerner to study charismatic or important, ecologically important, large mammals in the field for the first time. Um, he's the author of numerous books uh, on his work, and he's an inspiration to thousands, if not millions, of conservationists around the world. So welcome, George. Well, thank you very much. All right. And our second uh, guest is uh, Dr. Bill Buiz, um, another outstanding, elegant writer on topics of conservation and the environment. I spent time in Laos with George looking for Sala and other things in the 90s, and then uh, Bill Buiz came out, and we had uh, quite some adventures in the Annamite Mountains of Laos in, I think, 2011. And out of that research, another research, uh, Bill wrote the wonderful book about Sala and its conservation, The Last Unicorn. And Bill's with us from his home in the mountains of New Mexico today. Welcome, Bill. Good to be with you, Bill. Thank you. Yeah. And Bill DeBuise and George Schaller also worked together for several years with a major supporter of cell law conservation, the Liz Claiborne Art Ortenberg Foundation, and we're very grateful to them. Um, so they, they know each other and have stolen a few horses themselves. So, uh, George, uh, <laughs> most of your career in the field, you've done some incredible field work. Um, most of it's been in Asia. You know, looking back on a career of, you know, 60 plus years doing conservation work in Asia, any thoughts, any reflections around hopes for the future of conservation in Asia? Well, that's a rather general question. Uh, conservation depends in part on political stability in the country, and it depends on the economics of the country. If it's reasonably well off, they can afford to have conservation. But also extremely important is to get the local communities involved in conservation so they benefit at present and for the future and help protect the wildlife and the habitats. So there's still a lot of environment left to protect, but a lot of it is being carelessly destroyed. Right. Yeah, and I think that's where we're lucky with Salwa, because as you know, um, you know, there's a lot of animals in Asia that have a very high price on their heads. And it's, a, you know, an economic opportunity lost for people to conserve these animals, or maybe they're in competition with their livestock or whatever, or killing their livestock. We found quite good traction with uh, getting community support for Salwa conservation, because there, there's no cost to villagers really to not killing a Salwa just being caught up as bycatch, you know, you know, in the commercial wildlife trade and poachers. 
Phil Weiss, do you have any thoughts on what you <laughs> reflecting on what you saw in Laos when things weren't quite as good uh, for conservation in Laos when you were there? I think they've gotten better since then. Any thoughts on hopes for Sawa and conservation in Southeast Asia? Well, two things. One is that the the toll of snaring in the Annamite Mountain was really it was a defaunation of the entire ecosystem as as Rob Timmons said, you know, there's large sections of forest where you cannot encounter a mammal larger than a copper spaniel. Uh, they're just all gone. But that said, the second big thing is just the fecundity of that environment, the, the potential. If areas are reasonably protected for livestock to come back, the fertility and the reproduction possibilities are simply enormous. Uh, one of the things that struck me about the Sala is, is that their habitat, they, where, where they occur, is in areas so remote that Salas never even showed up in the otherwise encyclopedia, encyclopedic pharmacopoeia of traditional Asian medicine. So as you say, there was no particular price on their head. They weren't lusted after for one purpose or another. So golly, if, if they're still there and if their habitat can be protected, the uh, prospects are really, really good. Yeah. And uh, George, if I may, I'm going to quote you from your wonderful book, uh, Tibet Wild. That's one of my favorite books of yours. Um, about your experiences in this huge area, the Tibetan steppe, the Chan Khan. And you, you spent a lot of time there uh, searching for the calving ground of the endangered Tibetan antelope or Chiru. And you wrote in Tibet Wild, quote, whenever I do research in an area, I select a totem animal in which my heart can rest, an animal of beauty and interest and in need of conservation. And also one that you know, can contribute to conservation of a large area. And I think you did that with uh, Tibetan antelope in the Chang Tang. And, you know, we're, as Bill said, we have this amazing Anamite Mountains, and we're trying to use Sala in the same way. Well, uh, I've made only two trips to Vietnam in the late 80s and four trips to Laos in the 90s. And I was wonderfully impressed with the cooperation and the helpfulness that the government and the local people extended to me an American, considering the horrible war America fought in that region. So I think the people are open to helping others and themselves to have a good environment for the future for the solar and other animals. Yeah, yeah. And certainly our experience at the Sala Foundation, um, the the supportive environment of the Lao government is fantastic now. Um, it's, you know, the best any of us have ever seen since we've been working in Laos for 30 years. The government is really committed to working with us to save Sala, and they recognize also the importance of the Anamite Mountains, and they're really taking serious steps to protect it now. That's wonderful news. Bill Robichaud, what's, what's your perspective looking forward? Uh, you've spent uh, more time on that region than either <laughs> the other two of us uh, in recent years. Yeah. Um, 
You know, to be honest, I mean, the way I look at it is um, certainly all of us in the cell law foundation, um, we are absolutely convinced that there is time to save cell law. And both of you know our technical director, Rob Timmons. Um, he's just brilliant at finding rare wildlife in Southeast Asia. He's been doing this for years. And Rob's also uh, a very pragmatic skeptic. And he was he's the last person in the world who would go on like a wild goose chase or an extinct animal chase. And he's convinced that there are cell laws still to be found. So I'm very hopeful. Um, that said, uh, what we're doing with the Cell Law Foundation, the way I look at it, Bill, is, um, you know, Laos is a Buddhist country. And you both worked in Buddhist countries a fair bit, uh, both of you in Nepal, you know, and Laos. Um, you know, the Buddhists said no effort is wasted. And even if we're not in time to find Cell Law, and save it. We're doing so much good along the way by developing especially something that was so important to George or is important to George for his entire career is developing and encouraging and mentoring young conservation talent. Um, and we're doing that in Laos. And whether or not this team is going to be in time to find Salah, as we believe it will be, this team is going to be together working on the next animals, you know, that need help in the Annamite Mountains. Um, things like the large antlered muntjac. George and I, in one of our surveys, we rediscovered a muntjac, Roosevelt's muntjac, that hadn't been heard of for like 60 or 80 years. So there's a lot of other species in line. So yeah, I, at the Salah Foundation and myself, I just get up every morning and I put one foot in front of the other and do the next right thing in front of me. Um, you know, I don't have control over the outcome, but we do have control over, you know, what good action we take. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm very hopeful, if, <laughs> if that sounds hopeful. <laughs> so. Bill, there's this one species that has been discovered and never found, the lead one, uh, which is this goat-like animal with its spiral horns, oh, yeah. and it is long, and uh, the horns are exist, like what found in the chats, like he did the solar, this lead one, it's never been found as a body. And where is it? If it's exterminated, you gotta keep looking. Yeah. George, are you talking about the Kating Vor from northern Cambodia, southern Laos area? Yeah. Yeah, actually, I did some searches for that in southern Laos. And as you said, some people are, it, it's known that some of the horns of what were believed to be this animal were, were faked out of cow horns. But I, others also believe that some of the horns that are in the collections now are the real thing. So, yeah, it just, it, yeah. It, it's, it also, you know, that's another window on, you know, we just still live in this incredible world, <laughs> you know, with still amazing things and a lot yet to be discovered. And if I may, on that note, I'm going to um, quote from Bill DeBuise's book. I'm pretty sure this is from, this is from, actually this is from The Last Unicorn. I love this passage. Bill wrote, quote, uncounted species, and not just charismatic animals like tigers, gorillas, rhinos, and saula, but even a larger number of obscure rodents, amphibians, birds, and reptiles have been pressed to the brink. We hardly know them, and yet within the vastness of the universe, they and the rest of the Earth's biota are our only known companions. Without them, our loneliness would stretch to infinity. 
And that, that really, that's so beautifully said. And that sums up for me, you know, while I'm still involved in cell law conservation, because, you know, the world's a better place with cell law in it than without it. And that's really the only reason I need. That's something that, that you and I discussed when we were uh, on the trail together, Bill, that the conservation movement has often justified its goals only in terms of utilitarian uh, values, you know, what wildlife can do for people. And we haven't, in a way, emphasized enough the, just the, the beauty of the wild world and the creatures that live in it. So uh, I think that's a message that the Stella Foundation is doing a good job of getting out there. No, thanks. And again, I, I, and this is something that's been central to George in his career. Um, here's another quote from, by George from, I think, Tibet Wild, which I think really aligns with you and me, Bill. George wrote, you can do the best science in the world, but unless emotion is, is involved, it's not really very relevant. Conservation is based on emotion. It comes from the heart, and one should never forget that. Well, you, so you look at the sound lot. Just a photograph. It is a beautiful animal with the white facial markings, the white above the hoof, and so forth. So for no other reason than its beauty, no words acting. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and George, you know, people often ask us, you know, me or you or, you know, why are you saving Sala? You know, what's the point? Well, one of my responses, I noticed nobody ever asks like the, the guards at the Van Gogh Museum or the curators there, why are you saving Van Gogh's paintings? Why are you doing all this work? Well, it's obvious. You don't have to ask people why they're doing that. It's this incredible thing of beauty that the world's better for it being in it. And I, I agree with you guys. I, that's really all the an answer I need for Saula. And Bill, I think you're right. In fact, the utilitarian arguments for conservation, um, they can be a bit risky because they can lack credibility or just sound a little bit uh, ungenuine. Because, you know, if you go to a conservation conference and you have all these de dedicated conservationists there, you know, people like you and me and Schaller, and you look out in that sea of faces, not one of them got into animals and conservation as a young person for utilitarian benefit. They got into it because they love it and they got into it with their heart. And I think we, we need to be confident enough to just say, look, I'm just doing this because I love it and I think it's worthwhile. You know, we always kind of feel the need to make us, um, yeah, this utilitarian excuse for conservation. And I don't know if that's particularly helpful because that's not why any of us got into it. So we should just, you know, speak from the heart and speak honestly. And I think people can respond to that better in some ways. How do you convince local people uh, is that reasoning? Yeah. That they can make so much money. Uh, in Vietnam, they wiped out the last rhinos. Right. They yeah. can make thousands of dollars. The tiger can bring several thousand dollars in products selling body parts to China. Yeah. And if you're poor, you're not going to worry about that kind of arguments. Yeah, this is true. And you're also, yeah, you're not going to worry about the utilitarian arguments. Um, but who knows? Maybe somebody, you know, it's interesting. Some of the best conserva local conservation in Laos is for reasons like um, 
There's areas in Laos, we know, where the local people protect gibbons, you know, the small ape, because they say they're a lot like people. They look like people. They live in small family groups like people, and we just like them so we don't kill them. Um, so again, it's the, 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 the reasons we see local conservation, they can be, be for economic benefit. Local people may do it. But as you said, it's such a challenge uh, when the prices are so high on these animals for killing them. But in other cases, yeah, local people will conserve animals for more heart-centered reasons or spiritual reasons like taboos on killing rhinos or wild cattle. George, another thing you said along the lines, and I think it's, you said, although conservation must be scientifically grounded, it is actually a moral issue of beauty, ethics, and spiritual values. And that's something very much that I very much resonate with. Getting back to the, the Anamites, which both of you got, well, all of us have spent a fair bit of time in the Anamites. Um, one of the things, George, that you recognized is and one advantage of focusing on conservation of large animals, which you've done for your whole career, is you've pointed out that a large animal needs a large area. So by definition, to conserve a large animal like a Salah or a Tibetan antelope or you know, tiger or Serengeti lion, you need a large area. And then by doing that, by protecting that large area to protect that animal, you get a lot of smaller animals uh, in the package in the whole ecosystem. So did, is it fair to say that's been part of your approach and career? Well, that's very true. That's one reason. But if you're a film biologist, Unless you have independent wells, you depend on research grants. So if you pick a large animal that gets some interest, you're more likely to raise the money to do it than if you uh, want to study the striped rabbit in Vietnam, even though it's unique and local. Yeah, so the practicalities of economics raise their head again in, in that respect. Yeah. Indeed. George, I understand that um, you're planning to go back to Nepal and Brazil in the coming months or in the next year. Is that right? Oh, both. Both. <laughs> the government has been very cooperative and they've asked me to come back. Yeah. So uh, even at age 90, retirement does not seem to be on your radar or agenda. What do you mean by retirement? <laughs> that reminds me of, um, I guess I, I was in Switzerland recently. I saw Bruce Springsteen in concert in Zurich and it was fantastic. And I, I saw an interview with him several years ago when he was in his 60s, about 10 years ago. And they they said, oh, Bruce, are you still going to be touring, you know, when you're, when you're in your 70s? And without hesitation, he said, of course I will. This is what I love to do. It's what I've always loved to do. So why should I stop? And I hear um, George Schaller and field work for large wildlife in that answer as well. One enjoys doing it. And it is something useful. George, what are you going to be doing in Nepal? Are you going back to Dalto? Yeah. The, the whole economy in that area is changing or has changed rapidly. And I want to see what's been going on. I haven't been back since 2016. 
So is uh, Dopal is Dopal the area that you traveled with Peter Matheson uh, when he did the book The Snow Leopard and the area Bill DeBuis traveled for his recent book The Trail to Conjuroba? Is that Dopal? Uh, yes, yes, in, in both cases. Okay. Bill, do you want to just say a little bit about, I mean, you were in uh, Dopo just in the last several years, um, and certainly you had in mind, and I think you were sort of tracing some of the trails that uh, George Schaller had been on with Peter Matheson in the, in the early 70s. Any reflections on changes that you saw in the intervening decades there? Well, it's, a, it's like every place, it's a complex situation. Uh, the recent years, recent uh, decades, especially since the Civil War and through the Civil War in the fall, uh, many, many people left the rural areas and went to Kathmandu and other urban centers. And so the, the, the village world in Dolpo and other remote regions of Nepal was substantially depopulated. Hmm. as people sought uh, livelihoods in the cities. But COVID reversed that migration because life in the city was intolerable and people moved back to where uh, they could raise food because the tourist economy of Nepal absolutely crashed. And where things stand with that push and pull right now, I certainly could say I'll be really interested to hear what George learned from his trip, because uh, nothing stays the same, and the ecological changes with uh, climate change in that region are also part of the push and pull, and uh, are are very powerful. Yeah, and we're you know we're seeing the same thing in the the Anamite Mountains, where you know a lot of the villages that you and George um, went to, and, you know I've been to, there is this sort of depopulation of the young people moving down to the cities to accept jobs, uh, you know, working in restaurants or whatever. Um, you know, there's also the risk of some of them getting caught up in the human trafficking, you know, that goes across the border to Thailand. Uh, one thing that we found as a consequence of this, it's, it's harder to find local people in the villages, younger people who know as much about wildlife and the forest and the local ecologies as, you know, they did 10, 20 years ago, because they seem less interested in going into the forest now. You know, they want to go down where they have cell phone connection in the, in the villages. One thing I, I'm proud of with the Salaw Foundation is, you know, we put together this uh, loud team to help us do the intensive Salaw search. We've got about a team of about 30 allow uh, field workers. They're going to be detection dog handlers and wildlife trackers and logistical support. And a lot of them are recruited from villages in the Salas range. So we're finding a way for them to find employment, but to stay in the forest. And in our view, that's that's a good thing. The issue for Salas is, you know, local people up in the forest killing it for food. You know, it's these organized commercial poaching gangs we're often based in the cities, you know, coming in and poaching. And actually having local people in the forest can be, you know, a bit of a deterrent to that. Plus, they can also be the eyes and ears for both Salah and for threats. That makes me think about some of the people we were with in, uh, it, it, when we went to the Namyang and the Mullen in mm-hmm. 2011, Bill. Uh, are, have you been back to Ben Lemoyne, for instance, and is Gong Khan? 
I have been back, but actually not in, God, it's been a few years because COVID shut everything down. So like you, I have been back to Laos now since COVID, but only to the city about six months ago. So I've been wondering about Gong Chan and, you know, if his liver is given out yet for his, his fondness for the drink. But I, I really am planning to get back up there, see if Gong Chan is there and Mr. Sai, who is the great, you know, tracker and cell lie expert. I did run into Vieng Zai, who was kind of, he was the guy, you know, he's great at a drinking party in the village, but he was a pain in the ass in the forest. He found a job down in town. Yeah. I ran into him working as like a security guard at a hotel or something down in the town of Nakai afterwards. So, yeah. Oh, that's, that's mind-blowing. He was, he was really a, a, a persistent difficulty for for us through that long trip. Yeah, and I, I, I read about, you know, reading like Tibet Wild and George's challenges with like, just some of his, you know, the drivers, the truck drivers trying to get across the, you know, Tibetan step who just decided they weren't gonna drive the truck anymore. They had enough and, you know, what can you do? And certainly George had a lot of experience with that and his adventures. So one thing that I'm wondering how do you solve the poaching problem in animals anywhere else? Because, as you mentioned, you can walk for hours, days, and you don't see an animal, not even a monkey in these areas. And you have snare lines, fences built several hundred yards long with a snare at each. And animals can't survive that. If you send in guards to destroy it, will local people tolerate it? That's a really interesting question and something we've been, you know, looking at and well working on for decades now. Um, so one answer is the local people do tolerate it. In fact, they're quite happy because at least on the Lao side of the border, to be honest, most of the snaring is done by Vietnamese coming across the border from Vietnam. Because, you know, in Vietnam, you have the population is 100 million people with all these trade connections to China. You know, in Laos, the population is only 6 million people, mostly farmers. So the villagers are actually happy to have, you know, they're afraid of these organized poacher gangs. And they're actually happy to have patrols go up and kind of take care of it so they don't have to run into and confront them. On the wider issue, um, and we actually, we had programs where villagers were earning money by collecting snares. They would go out and we would pay them, like I think there was a while we were paying like 25 cents a snare. And if they collected hundreds of snares, they could make actually quite a lot of money. On the other question of how, you know, what you guys have talked about is, you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, conservation, you know, it does need to come from the heart. People have to want to do it. Or they'll always find a way around the rules and the regulations. And I think what's essential is the work of groups like WildAid that are working on the demand side with these like publicity campaigns in China using like Jackie Chang and Yao Min, the basketball player. Because I think my experience of human nature is you have to get the demand countries and the people in the urban centers to just stop wanting to buy wildlife. But that takes a generation, I think, for those added attitudes to change. So the way I look at what we're doing is you got these great organizations like WildAid working on reducing the demand for wildlife in source countries like uh, China and urban centers in Vietnam. 
But at the same time, you need other conservation organizations on the ground, like WCS or WWF or the Sala Foundation, trying to keep some of these animals alive long enough until those that demand can go away, you know, in 20 years. And wild aid is having quite a lot of success in reducing demand for things like shark fin and other wildlife. And our hope with the Cell Law Foundation is keep some of the beautiful cell laws alive until areas of the forest aren't under such pressure from the poaching. So, because as you've seen, George and Bill, both of us, you know, we did a lot of snare collection. We collected hundreds of thousands of snares, but you get in this economic bind where as these animals get rarer, the price goes up. So the motivation for the poachers to go into the forest and keep setting more snares increases. So we finally concluded, well, not just us, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, IUCN, and the IUCN Cell Law Working Group, everybody finally recognized that we couldn't save cell law in the forest. And I think Bill DeBuise, you saw that, you know, in the kind of tone when we were there together. The snaring, despite all the, the efforts of the increased patrolling, the snaring was outpacing it. And so the only hope for Salah now is to get some of them into safe captivity and then work on, you know, getting these landscapes protected to where you can eventually release them someday. So I think the, the short answer, George, is you have to have long-term vision and people working at both sides of the, the issue, both the immediate killing of the animals in the forest, trying to limit that as much as possible and do what you can for the animals while you reduce the, the human desire for to do these things. Do you have any idea whether you will be successful with captive breeding? It certainly is a risk. I mean, as you know, Saula has never been kept in captivity successfully, you know, but also Saula has never been kept by anybody with professional expertise in the keeping of hoofed animals. Though all the Saula that have been in captivity in Laos and Vietnam have just been kept in a ad hoc fashion by Department of Forestry guys or, you know, villagers. And certainly a captive breeding program for an animal, which are, there are none in captivity now, is very risky. But our belief is that leaving Sala in the forest with all the snares is riskier. So we don't have a risk-free option to save Sala, and we're just going for what basically the global conservation community has agreed is the, the least risky option that we have. And Bill, the, the captive breeding of Okapi has yeah. been sort of an inspiration along yeah. this line, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. And in fact, on the advisory council of the Sala Foundation is Steve Scherter. And Steve Scherter is one of the guys who figured out how to find Okapi, which is another large, rare tropical ungulate, rarely seen for, I mean, most people know an Okapi, but it's this giraffe relative of Central African forests that, like Salah, was discovered very late. I think it wasn't discovered until like 1901 or 1910. And Steve Scherter is one of the guys who figured out how to find Okapi, capture them, and how to keep them successfully in captivity. So that's exactly why we brought his expertise into the Salah Foundation. Can I, uh, I want to share a little story about, George is very famous for snow leopards. I think, George, weren't you the first one to photograph a snow leopard in the wild? Do I have that fact correct? I don't know if I was the first one, but people claim it. <laughs> okay, well, we'll claim it for you. <laughs> so, uh, when you and I were doing a, we were doing a survey together in Laos in, it was probably about 1995, and we we're out 
in this forest area. And um, we passed a big, we were headed towards a campsite and we passed a big fig tree in fruit, which often tracks a lot of animals. Uh, and then we went another hour or so and we made camp. And we were with our, with our, our pal, Mr. Kamkun. And then um, our destination, we were going to a village. We were trekking towards a village for our next stop that night. There are no roads in this area. We were just on hiking trails. And I, I, what I asked for, I said, why don't the next, early in the next morning, I'm going to go hide like before dawn under this fig tree and just see what animals come into it. And why don't you and Kamkun and the porters, you keep going down the trail and I'll catch up to you in the village, you know, later in the day. So I did that and I had a fantastic morning. It's like this gibbons came into this fig tree and these great hornbills, you know, these huge birds and it was full of birds. And I was so excited and I just had to tell the great George Schaller about all this. <laughs> and because I just want to say, you've been very important to my family for a long time, but you don't even know. My late older brother has been calling you Serengeti George for years. And I think he gave me the Serengeti lion as my high school graduation gift. And then when he heard I was working with you, he said, oh God, say hi to Serengeti George for me, you know, and so forth and so on. So anyway, I catch up with you in the village later that day and I just run on and on about all the great things I saw. And you got this little mischievous, uh, shite-eating grin on your face. And then I finally say, oh, did you and Kamkun see anything on the walk to the village? And you say, yeah, saw a clouded leopard right in the middle of the day, 20 yards. First one I've ever seen. <laughs> I, God, I couldn't believe it. You were walking to the village and like you always do, you walked in front so you could see the wildlife and you came around a corner on a trail and there was a clouded leopard sitting on the trail. The first clouded leopard ever seen by George Schaller. Are you, are you still the only biologist who's seen uh, all of the big Asian cats firsthand? I have no idea. I, I, I saw that reported about you at, at uh, some point. I can't remember the source. I think we talked about I think they had... And, you know, when you were in Laos, so we were both working for the Wildlife Conservation Society, and I remember... I started my career sort of like you. We both started studying birds in college and in high school. And then uh, I was, you know, I'm not a mammologist. And when you were in Laos in the mid-1990s, and you, you and the late Alan Rabinowitz, who was my boss at the time as director of the Asia program, you and Alan did one of the first field surveys for Sawa. And you published a paper on that in the journal Oryx about all the stuff you'd found about Sawa in the field in Laos. And I remember I asked you, I said, George, look, you've defined your career. And you were in your, I think, mid-60s then. You were still very young. And I said, you defined your career as being the first biologist to study some little-known large animal in the wild. I mean, you started with mountain gorilla in 1959. And then you went on to tigers and Serengeti lion and jaguar. You know, the first Westerner allowed into China to study giant pandas. I said, why aren't you make, settling down in Laos and making Sawa your retirement project? I, I just thought you were going to like, you and Kay were going to move to Laos and you were going to start studying Sawa. And you just said, well, it's your job, obviously. Yeah, I guess so. Well, thank you for leaving it to me. Um, but I remember what you said. You said, well, how do you study an animal you can't even see? I'm going back to the Tibetan plateau where I can actually see what I'm studying. That was your answer. 
And I still haven't seen a Sawa in the wild. You know, I've seen the Martha the captive, but I've still not seen one in the wild that I know of. So. Well, this past thing is, all these rare species from the Anamites, they're usually discovered as horns and antlers nailed to a goat's wall. Yeah, that's what you and I, you and Cancun, we were, when we were in another part of Laos, we were down in a village in the province of San Juan, which is one of the most bombed areas of uh, the war. You know, U.S. US Air Force turned Laos into the most bombed country in history, and part of that was around this area where we were. Yeah, and we were down in the village, and we found um, in the village they had a pair of um, very small muntjac antlers. They had a little antler trophy and but the antlers, these barking deer antlers, were tiny, and you know it looked a bit strange. So we 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 paid a bit of money for this, you know, a couple dollars for this set of antlers. And then uh, your colleague at WCS at the time, George Amato, did a genetic analysis, and it turns out that you'd rediscovered Roosevelt's barking deer, Roosevelt's muntjac, which was known from. One specimen collected by the sons of Teddy Roosevelt in northern Laos in like the 1920s and hadn't been seen since. So yeah, and Rob Timmons, our technical director of Sala Foundation, he discovered that striped rabbit from a specimen in a food market in Laos. He discovered an entirely new mammalian family, this weird rodent, the Kanyu, from a food market in Laos. Um, we discovered, you know, first records of some birds in Laos by going to the fresh food markets, fortunately. Good news is that's much less common. I mean, the markets that are selling wildlife for food that people shoot, I mean, that was really common in the 1990s. And the government really has made a lot of good progress in, you know, making that more difficult for people to do. So we're not as discovering as many new species anymore because we can't find them in the food markets. So I guess we have to get out in the forest. The wonderful thing is, you now have the technology, like George Armado uses the DNA to separate the different, you know, to make sure that separate species and so forth. That wasn't available a few years ago. Right, and that's one thing we're really grateful to uh, WCS, the Wildlife Conservation Society, for. We partnered with their molecular genetics laboratory. And in the last year, they've developed for us this Saula-specific rapid DNA test kit. So if we, we find some Saula sign, like you know some droppings that we think are Saula, thanks to this WCS test kit, we can test it and get an answer within an hour in the field. Um, and that's a, game, that's a potential game changer for finding and protecting Saula. Excellent. Bill DeBuise, I want to read another quote from uh, a Think from the, la from the Last Unicorn, your wonderfully eloquent book. And again, I, th I think it's, you know, Sawa is a different kind of animal to conserve because it's, you know, it's never been seen in the wild by a biologist. And so we're always just kind of out there with hope. And we often get asked, God, well, how do you keep up your enthusiasm? How do you do this? And for me, I think you, you said it succinctly. You wrote, uh, quote, Put a horse in an empty meadow and the meadow becomes animate. Put a sawa, even a sawa you cannot see in a forest. And the forest, as though it held a unicorn, acquires an energy that cannot be named. It becomes numinous. It gains the pull of gravity, the weight of water, the float of a feather. And I, 
That's so beautifully said. And I don't know about you, Bill and George, but you know, when we're when we walk around the Anamites, just knowing there are Saula probably there and you could meet one if you come around a corner like George met a clouded leopard. I mean, that's enough juice to keep me going when I'm there. I don't know if you guys feel the same way. Well, Bill, one thing I should say about uh, The Last Unicorn, if that book has any merit, it's not least because your spirit runs all the way through it. Uh, you are so eloquent yourself hmm. that it's made it so much easier for me to write about uh, those challenges and that that landscape, thanks to your narration of it as we travel uh, through it. Oh, well, thank, thank you very much. Thank you. You know, it's, it's an incredibly inspiring place. And I, I think, um, again, I'm always, I've taken a lot of pages out of George Schaller. Um, one thing that George did, you know, with the Tibetan antelope and the Changtang is he just stuck with it. He kept going back to Changtang and searching for the calving ground of Tibetan antelope. You know, George, it took you, what, like 20 years to find those calving grounds, but you stuck with it and you made a tremendous comp you made a tremendous contribution by picking that place and becoming committed to it. And that's something that, you know, all of us at the Salwa Foundation have picked up with the Anamite Mountains now. Well, at least the Tibetan antelope now are increasing again because China gives it better protection. Yeah. And I think we're seeing the same thing play out with Sawa and Laos. The Lao government has really gotten, you know, serious about saving it. You know, whether we're in time or not, you know, with the support of the world, because we can't do this alone, we're going to find out very soon within the next two years. So it's quite an exciting time. You know, like you searched for Tibetan antelope for years. <laughs> we're searching for Sawa, you know. I have a better vision there. I can see for miles across the plains. <laughs> yeah, I end, I'm reading Tibet Wild. I envy you. Oh, we saw like 2,000 Tibetan antelope today. I said, God, lucky son of a gun. That would be nice, you know. But, you know, they're similarly beautiful animals. I mean, the, the Chiru, the Tibetan animal, is so freaking beautiful. But it, it really wasn't that well known, like until you put it on the radar. But I see a lot of kinship well, with well, Sala. Well, <laughs> well, yeah, it was too well known to the the people buying the stars for sure. Yeah. Go ahead, Joe. Just got to keep at it. Yeah, and you and you and Tibetan antelope, I think, had something stacked against you that Sala doesn't have. Is people are actually trying to kill it. You know, for those who don't know the story, in the 1990s, these scars, Shatush made from the incredible fine underwool of a Tibetan antelope that they would sell for thousands of dollars. The only way you could get this was to kill these Tibetan antelopes and they were being wiped out for this trade. And George was a significant player in bringing attention to this to the world. But you really had, you know, people were out trying to search for those Tibetan antelope and kill them. And you were kind of racing the poachers, the last Tibetan antelopes. That's something, you know, we don't, we're not having to deal with, with Sawa. Nobody's out trying to find the last Sawa. So hopefully that'll give us, you know, a little bit of hope and edge and saving from extinction. Oh, it's very similar. You're out there connecting. Yeah. Bill, I've got a question for you. And, and that is, can you just sketch for us a little bit the timeline that you see right now? in the search for Sala. I know uh, Rob and 
Uh, the rest of the field team are, are moving into the field now, are they not? They are. Yeah, in fact, Rob flew to Laos uh, two days ago, two to three days ago. Our expert wildlife tracker, uh, based in uh, Wisconsin, like me, Matt Nelson, he's one of the best wildlife trackers in the United States and probably the world. He was helping a neighbor shovel something last week, and the, like the handle of the shovel slipped and knocked off the like the meniscus on his kneecap or something. Uh, so his flight, his trip to Laos is delayed. He's got to go for in for an MRI in the next few days. But I, I just texted him and he thinks he's okay and he'll be able to travel soon. So things are accelerating. So Rob's going back to the field. The field team has assembled um, the dogs. The first detection dogs are due to arrive in the next couple months. So um, as you know, our, our goal is to field this entire innovative, integrated team and keep them fully supported for 24 months in the field. And we think that's the best chance for cell law. And we're just about to start that. And I'd just like to give a shout out. We just heard in the last uh, couple of days, um, Ocean Park, um, a zoo in Hong Kong, has joined our Sala Gold, Gold Circle, and they've just contributed $50,000 to the Sala search. And we're so grateful because it's that kind of support that's going to get this done. And it's so cool to see, you know, an institution in Asia because, you know, Sala is an Asian species. And now we have this institution in Hong Kong, you know, supporting, you know, the conservation of another Asian species. So things are going, the, the other good news, Bill, is, um, you know, we, we're not positive how to identify cell law tracks, at least not yet, because, you know, there's, there's other animals, uh, hoofed animals in its range are about the same size. And that's why we need these sign detection dogs um, to verify. But in the area where the team is, you know, been starting to do some preliminary searching based on information from local people, they've been finding a lot of ungulate sign and ungulate droppings. A lot of it is probably this wild uh, goat type thing that's found there, the Ciro. But certainly some of the tracks they're finding are consistent with what could be Sala. In fact, one of them took a just a photo, uh, a video, a long video with his film camera of a Ciro walking around the forest. And a Ciro is about the same size as a Sala. And if they're still there and like sort of semi-tame enough to be filmed with a with a smartphone, this gives us hope that there still can be cell laws there as well. So, so far, the news is all really good. We're finding sign of ungulates at a much higher rate than we expected uh, going into this area. So this is an area that we found that hasn't been wiped out yet by all the snaring and the poaching. So the news is good. News is that, quite good. That's really wonderful. And I, I did get to see the video of the Cero, and it was amazing in that the animal was plainly aware of the human uh, who were making the video, and and yet it stayed in the area. Um, yeah. So it, it it seemed enchanting to see that. Right. Yeah. And. Well, I just want to thank both of you for your time. And I want to wrap up again a couple pages out of George's book. Um, one thing to remember is, you know, George said very astutely, I think, he wrote, there are never victories in conservation. If you want to save a species or a habit, it's a fight forevermore. You can never turn your back. That conservation isn't a destination. You know, it's a journey and something you always have to do. Um, and George also reminded us of a quote, uh, the Dalai, His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, 
Ultimately, the decision to save the environment must come from the human heart. And both of you guys have contributed a lot to that. Just through George of his example of working from the heart, you know, for 70 years, George Challenge has been doing field work from the heart. And Bill, your beautiful book, The Last Unicorn, I mean, written with the heart. And, you know, I've asked donors that, you know, given us big chunks of money and I'll say, how did you ever find us and find Salah? And one of them said to me recently, that book, The Last Unicorn, that's what got me involved. And both of you just, you're always working from the heart. Uh, that's so inspirational because at the end of the day, that's what conservation needs most is inspiration. So I just want to give uh, thanks and a shout out to both of you. We'll keep up that long, wonderful work that you're doing over there. All right, thanks, George. Yeah, back at you, Bill. For all the praise of the world. George, when are you coming back to Laos? <laughs> well, I don't really have any plan, and I don't know what I can do usefully. Well, um, why don't you come visit? We've got some good Laosians working there as well these days. Yeah, we're fantastic. Our our Lao programs director, Olay, who I've known since he was a kid, uh, he's just brilliant, and he's put together just a really fantastic team. George, how about you come visit the first Saulas when we get them into the captive breeding program? Be sure with the Saulas, we test them well to see if they get on together and yeah. okay. Well, look, at, it's one of the few large animals in the world you haven't seen. So I think you need to come to Laos. I'm gonna give you a call when we have some and you can come to cross that T in your career. Okay. Uh, That'd be fun. All right, George, thank you very much. And Bill Buiz, and we want you to get back to Salah Habitat. You can do some more eloquent writing about this search. So I hope we can work that out. I'd love to do it. And, uh, love, to, love to get back on the trail with you, Bill, one of these days. Likewise. Thanks very much. <laughs>